Ball and Play 2 presented by DraftKings is underway. Head over to our Warehouse Games channel to see all the action from Ball and Play. Get some skin in the game and download the DraftKings app right now. Don't forget to use our promo code WAREHOUSE. That's promo code WAREHOUSE only at DraftKings Sportsbook. The crown is yours. Hey, everybody. It's Justin Shackle welcoming you to Towing the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Today is episode four. Of course, I'm joined by five-time World Series champion David Cohn, signing winner as well, and the uh, ace statistician James Smythe. David, what are we talking about today? Hey, Justin, hey, James, how's it going? Hey, nice game last night. Get the series keep going. You know, I, I was kind of uh, in favor of that. I mean, there's something about the last game of the baseball season, right? It kind of leaves you wanting a little bit more. I'm kind of happy. You know, we're going to get maybe at least one more game back to Houston. Atlanta's going to have to earn it. And boy, they were ready to explode last night in Atlanta, right? I mean, over 100,000 people there. Just remarkable. People outside the stadium. Uh, that, that was exciting to watch. Yeah. And I mean, when, when Adam Duvall hits that grand slam and it, everyone's going berserk, say, well, tonight's the night, I guess. But Astros, uh, Astros are tough to kill. How many of you, uh, between the both of you, when Duvall hit that home run in the first inning, the grand slam, did you think it was over? Did you think we would be talking about a Braves world championship when we record this? We're recording this Monday, the day before game six. Uh, the one reason why I didn't think it was is because it was the first inning. So uh, Houston had a lot of bad bats to get through. And uh, the, uh, you know, the Braves obviously were going to have a bullpen game. There was going to be a lot of opportunities to, for, for the, uh, Astros to come through and, and they're, they're batting order still to me. I mean, at some point they're going to wake up, whether it's Bregman or Alvarez. I mean, they have seven hitters in that order that are well above average, according to OPS plus uh, the Braves have maybe three or four in their lineup up and down. So when collectively, when you look at the talent and the skill level of the Astros offense down four to nothing in the first inning, uh, that's the one offense to me around the American league or really around the big leagues that, had the best chance to come back. Looking at the strength of that offense, the highest scoring in the game, the tenuous position of the Braves staff, and also in the back of my head, uh, Falcons 28, Patriots 3. Oh, Atlanta <laughs> heartbreak. So that was a little uh, that's a little tough. I will admit I did think it was over because of the theme that we've seen so many times this postseason, especially the big runs early. And then kind of the slog that happens after that. And we've, we've seen it with the Astros, too. We saw it in the ALCS when they were facing the Red Sox. They kind of were, were napping a little bit in the early portions of this series. So it was tough to figure out if they were going to come alive. But they did. And they did it with a lot of guys that kind of represent their old guard. And it's a big reason why they are back in this series. Why we are looking ahead to game six here. As the World Series goes back to Houston, the Astros rolling on to a win on Sunday, 9-5. to five. Atlanta still leads the series three games to two. In between the, the three games in Atlanta, though, busy weekend, Halloween weekend. Did you guys celebrate at all? Did you have any visitors uh, come knock on your door trick-or-treating in those uh, New York City apartments? Not me. No, I'm, I'm a new resident. Uh, I've got boxes all over my apartment here. I'm just moving in. I'm in a little nook in the corner over here, you know, by a window seal where I can put some decorations behind me. That's about it. Got a couple of bobbleheads. I got a Sammy's Romanian restaurant, a famous old sign in New York. I got a Buddha. I got Joan Cohn, the first uh, sabermetrician I ever met who kept the <laughs> scorebooks right behind me in her wedding dress. So, you know, I'm to really makeshift here. So trick-or-treaters, no, not yet. I'm not ready for them here. 
uh, I, I had my I had my penguin hoodie uh, yesterday out in the streets of New York, and even uh, one guy shouted out from a stoop, "Hey, penguin!" and he tossed me a uh, a Reese's peanut butter cup. So that's my Halloween. Nice. So you didn't have to. You didn't actually have to ring the door. You were having candy thrown at you. That's 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 different. But that's New York City for you. Yeah. Yeah. David, I also think we're going to be able to track your moving process along the way with this podcast. So maybe every week we're going to ask, hey, David, how's the moving going? And there's going to be that one week where you're like, I'm settled in and it's complete. So we're we're at episode four now. We'll see how long it takes. We're going to start a running tally. Maybe maybe Dan Rourke, our awesome producer, can start that tally for us as uh, as we get going here on Toe in the Slab. All right. So uh, recapping the games in Atlanta, games three, four, and five. But before we do that, we're trying to incorporate some some new segments here on Toe in the Slab as we get going. A lot of uh, a lot of the feel out process with the new podcast is still in effect. So we're trying to figure out what works, what doesn't, and I think in the spirit of pitching, David, this is a great place to have you kind of start us off each week with a a subtopic, if you would, something that, you know, we're going to spend some time on, but not as much as the main topic. And we like to phrase this as the opener, apropos, right? The opener. The opener and maybe uh, on the other end, uh, the end, Uh, we saw... Zach Greinke hit a laser to right right field last night as a pinch hitter for a pitcher pinch hitting in the World Series. It was a 105 miles an hour, almost 106 miles an hour off of his bat. It was the hardest hit ball uh, by Houston all night long, and it might be the last National League game, the pure National League game we ever see because with the collective bargaining agreement this offseason, the universal DH is widely speculated to be part of the game next year. Uh, we might have just witnessed the end last night and the, the end of a true National League game where the pitcher has to hit from the beginning. And uh, certainly there's outliers. Shohei Otani is going to break break the mold uh, just about, any, you know, anytime you talk about these sorts, sorts of topics. But, yes, universal DH, yay or nay. Are you for it? Are you against it? I am pro DH. I think it's a job creator. There's a lot of great hitters out there that that need jobs. And for me, that's that's the trump card, you know, is that – you know, you can get 15 more jobs in the big leagues and, you know, uh, for hitters uh, that really deserve it, that might not otherwise get that chance. When you take a look at maybe, you know, take 10 pitchers, David, hitting in the National League, how many of them will, will actually be bummed about the fact that they're not going to have to hit? Well, there is a legitimate uh, beef for the guys that are really good hitters, whether you're a Madison Bumgarner or you're a Zach Greinke for that matter. There are a few outliers, pitchers who really are so much better than their opponent. And, you know, back to my National League days with the Mets, I always thought, man, if I could do something better than the other pitcher did, get a bunt down, get a hit, make sure he doesn't strike him out or get him out. You know, it's that head-to-head competition between you and the other opposing pitcher when you're in the National League game to where you really can can think, or at least you think you can have an advantage. There are a few pitchers that are going to lose that advantage. I, I can understand their beef, but... To me, the long in the long run, at the end of the day, uh, yeah, I'm pro DH because of all the extra at bats that are that are going to be had by quality hitters that are waiting for a chance or an opportunity to potentially play in the big leagues. As fun as it was to see Granky get the hit, uh, get two hits, um, we've seen way too many just. 
plainly non-competitive plate appearances in major league games by guys who aren't trained to hit at a major league level. Guys that sometimes you see, especially in interleague, a guy might not have even been in a, a live at bat since high school. And now they're stepping in against a major league pitcher and they're being asked to do something that they're not truly prepared to do. Um, this year, uh, just this year alone, the MLB batting average for pitchers was 110 with a 150 on base percentage and a 142 slugging percentage. So even the few hits that they are getting are mostly singles and they're striking out at almost double the league average rate, more than 40%, 44 to be exact, uh, 44% of plate appearances by pitchers this year were strikeouts. And these numbers have been in decline for years, uh, going back to really the 1800s when pitchers started splitting off from two-way players, part-time players, and now it's your pitcher 100%. And from that moment on, the, the, the numbers have tailed off and they seem to get worse every year. So I think for, from that standpoint, it would be better to have actual professional big league hitters taking the place uh, of, of these plate appearances. And we've had evidence during this World Series of the, the momentum that it kind of kills. And you go back to Friday's Game 3 in Atlanta, and I was trying to search for the, the notes that I have. I, I have a, a big notebook that I kind of track. every. It's not a scorebook, but I, you know, I track each play of each game. I, I was over at the John Boy Media headquarters in the Bronx on Friday, taking the game in with some of the fellows and, and Jake Storiali, and we did the, the live stream of Game 3. I didn't want to bring... I, you know, notebook and taking notes on a live stream. But David, we called you in that game. So we we watched what Ian Anderson was able to do. This could be a good segue into what happened in game three, but there was early momentum being gathered on offense. And then an intentional walk happened to face the pitcher. What happened? Easy strikeout and crisis averted. So I think an important part of all this is how it's not going to be as easy for the opposition. And again, we saw that here in this world series. Well, it's so true. And James brought up something, you know, it's, it's always been a pet peeve of mine. The first time I, I batted in a major league game, I had not picked up a bat since high school. <laughs> really? I, it was high school baseball. That was the level of the last time that I actually had batted competitively. And that's, that's the thing for me is if you really are a pro pitcher hitting style of a game, national league style, and you're in a front office somewhere in these National League teams, why don't you let your pitchers hit the minor leagues? Why don't you let them train and practice and actually hone their skills so that when they do get a chance to bat the big leagues, that they have a little bit of practice, a little bit of training that's not allowed. It's actually disallowed in most spots because they're worried about injuries to pitchers in the minor league level. And it's understandable. Pitchers are a commodity. It's a, it's. You don't want to take chances with some of your top prospects coming up through the minor leagues, but that is really the case with most major league pitchers. You pick up a wood bat. I used to have an aluminum bat. You know, it was about 31 ounces, 30 ounce bat back in high school. I picked up a wood bat and it was like swinging a telephone pole for me. And these pitchers were throwing 95 miles an hour. I had no chance. I'd never seen anything like it. My first year of trying to bat in the big leagues. And really, as I said, since, since I was in high school. David, just for the record, do you know your batting stats as a major leaguer? 
I do. I got off to a bad start, but I think overall I was around a 150 batting average, somewhere in that neighborhood. I had one year where I won the batting title. It was, uh, I, I hit 234 one year. Uh, they do give out silver sluggers for pitchers, but that particular year, I think Don Robinson, who was a great hitter, had some power. I think he had five home runs that year as a pitcher. I ended up getting getting the silver slugger, but I got a batting title, a batting championship on <laughs> And I, believe me, I used it in arbitration, too. I told that arbitrator when I took the Mets to arbitration, hey, I hit 234. You know, that's a pretty good hitter. I think that amounted to maybe 14 hits in one year. I think it was 14 or something like that for 70-something. And back in the day, if you're a starting pitcher and you you did, you got 70 to 80 at-bats per year and 30 to 35 starts. So that's a significant number of at-bats for pitchers. Do they actually hand out – hardware for, for pitchers for batting titles not for batting titles no okay. but I, the silver slugger though I, I believe don robinson did get yeah. the silver slugger that year and Good uh, call, Cody. A, yeah he was uh he had some pop he was a real hitter actually don robinson was a really good hitter he's a threat to threat to go deep so, so you're right nine uh he hit three home runs but you hit 234 that season you were 18 for 77 in 1989 that was a big year that's big, 234. I'm proud of that. 155 career. So you were close. <laughs> Not so good. good it is. Yes. It, it is fitting that, like you said, David, uh, Zach Greinke is kind of part of that last collection of games where the the pitcher batting is, is probably going to end. And he did it with a, a nice showing for himself, a former silver slugger in his own regard, but that was game four. Let's touch on game three. We'll go in order here. Fr- Friday night, the Braves take the swing game to nothing. They hold the Astros to two hits. And Ian Anderson is the big story because he was taken out after five no hit innings. Now, many people on the surface, they're upset because he wasn't given a chance to continue the no hit bid, but Ian Anderson was never going to get to the ninth inning because Ian Anderson's really never pitched into the ninth inning in the majors. He was at 76 pitches. There's a, a lot of details here. The, the top of the Astros lineup was coming up. They had seen a lot of pitches from him as well. But overall, five innings, no hit ball from Ian Anderson. He was doing a good job. What was he doing well, David? You know, I thought Dusty Baker said it well in the post, post-game conference that he was kind of effectively wild. It, it wasn't your classic no-hitter. He wasn't a dominant performance. There was four base runners, a hit batter, uh, three walks. So he was in the stretch. He was kind of uh, a little all over the map, but he made pitches when he had to. He's got a great changeup. There's no two ways about it. Uh, and when you talk about uh, the, the pitch design in, in today's game, when I think of Ian Anderson, he reminds me of Lucas Giolito a little bit in terms of uh, the spin mirroring. If you think about s- the concept of spin mirroring, it's sort of trying to mirror the spin on your fastball and your changeup, and he does that exceptionally well, like Lucas Giolito. Um, even though one spin has backspin, uh, and the other one, depending on the, the axis in which the ball is spinning, it looks similar in terms of, of, of that mirroring effect and. uh to me, that's why sometimes you get away with high changeups. You think, wow, he got away with one there. It's actually, no, it's by design. Lucas Giolito throws a lot of high changeups off of that high four-seamer, and it's probably one of the most effective pitches that both of those pitchers have. And I think with Ian Anderson, he can always break out that changeup when he gets in trouble. He can throw at any time, in any count, and righties or lefties as well. So that, to me, that served him well. James, Ian Anderson is 
just 23 years of age. He was a first-round pick in, in 2018. But at 23, he has enough postseason experience as some some age veterans, really. A lot of season products uh, have experience. So he, I, I believe it's seven or eight appearances in the postseason for a 23-year-old. Can you help put that into context and how well he's been doing in this type of climate that we're talking about with starting pitchers? Obviously, managers are more focused these days on the specific matchups out of the bullpen, but what he's been able to provide in a World Series game gaining that experience and putting his team in a position to win. Well, Anderson, it's, he's made eight postseason starts and he's been phenomenal uh, between last October and this uh, postseason. He has a one, two, six ERA in those eight postseason starts. He only has 30 regular season starts in his career. So that's a pretty remarkable split. And David, when we, I, th- I think it was when we had you on the phone during that live stream for the World Series game, you pointed out to that over-the-top arm slot from, from Anderson. He's a big guy. And you kind of compared it to Mike Messina. And once you said that name, it immediately jumped out at me. It was so visible. But it, it's very, very over-the-top. And Trevor Plouffe uh, uh, kind of compared it to... Chris Young as well. That's a really tall starting pitcher, a lot taller than Mike Messina. How difficult is it for a, a hitter? What what kind of challenge does that present for a batter? It, it is interesting. I mean, we have so many different ways and methods now with the new technology to measure the quality of pitches. You know, Eno Saris, one of the, the great writer out there who's done work with Fangraphs and several other publications, uh, talks about stuff plus, meaning we evaluate each individual pitch based on the spin rate, the velocity, the horizontal vertical movement, and we look for characteristics that make them stand out. Uh, with Ian Anderson, there's nothing really that stands out with his, with his fastball in terms of spin rate or overpowering velocity or his changeup for that matter. But I think it really does come down to things that are hard to measure uh, in terms of deception. Does his arm angle that might you see in a release point style uh, really uh, help him. And I think it does. I think you hear it over and over again from hitters like Trevor Plouffe, uh, Plouffe that, that talk about, I just can't pick up the ball. I, I have trouble picking up the baseball out of his hand. And, and that just that little mystery or that little delay uh, makes the pitch that much more effective. It, it's, it's less anticipation time for a hitter to guess or to see and recognize. And there's just something different about him. And uh, it's not like uh, there's a lot of uh, comparables for him. It's, uh, most of these guys in Atlanta probably never seen Mike Messina pitch. That, that's the best comp I could come up with is, hey, yeah, he kind of throws like Mike Messina. Remember him? Uh, no. <laughs> I was 12 when he pitched, you know, some of these guys in the lineup nowadays. And that's always a slap in the face for me. You know, when you look at when the birth dates, when some of these guys are born after 2000 now, some of these guys, it's like, uh oh, you know, we're in trouble now. But yes, deception. Release point play a big part of it, and those are hard things to measure. You know, even though, and even with today's uh, metrics that we can we can peel back layers and analyze things and come up with answers, he, he kind of defies the odds a bit. It's interesting that Mike Messina is in this equation. 
Hall of Famer, obviously, great pitcher for for any era, but specifically his era where he was, you know, pitching in a very competitive division at a time where obviously there were performance enhancers involved. Is he kind of that outlier model? Because, you know, the, the type of stuff that we're talking about here, it also has Randy Johnson pop into my head. And obviously it's not with that over the top angle. He's coming at you kind of three quarters, but it all has to do with the size and some of the comps that, you know, I'm hearing a lot of it has to do with size. Ian Anderson's kind of a tall pitcher. So is, is Messina sort of the outlier? Somewhat. Yes. I mean, there are more pitchers that have kind of a high three quarters release point uh, than, than straight over the top or the opposite end of the spectrum. If you think, if you want a visual comp on the other end of the spectrum, think Max Scherzer, Max Scherzer's release point almost comes out of his ear. He just shoots it out of his ear, which creates some deception on his end too. the tremendous arm speed he gets from that lower release point, kind of uh, right off of his right shoulder. He hides the ball or Ian Anderson's more over the top. Uh, so that it's a completely opposite end of the spectrum in terms of release point, And that plays into it. How much hard to say, only the hitters can say, you know, what they see, how they pick it up, how they react to it. You just notice with Ian Anderson, he gets a lot of late swings on his fastball and a lot of early swings on his changeup. So he, he, he tends, at least his style, tends to really th- throw off the timing of hitters. And James, this postseason, we have seen bullpens outwork starting rotations. Ian Anderson is taken out after five innings. Big pendulum swinger, man, right? Like, where, where, how, how far off do the percentages drop after that happens? And mainly when the night shift gets going to work here for the Braves. That was a, uh, that's, that's up there in terms of bullpen labels. We'll get into that in a moment. But w- w- where are we at in terms of workload between bullpens and rotations this postseason? Well, we've been we've been monitoring this uh, each week or, or each episode. Uh, right now, it's it's fifty five forty five. The percentage split in favor of relievers. Um, as far as ERA goes, the postseason ERA for starters is four point five six, and it's three point eight eight for relievers. So, and that's that tracks with how it generally is relievers tend to be a little better uh in era than starters starters obviously overall provide more value because they're pitching a lot more innings each season um but the split is uh, is still is still heavily tilted toward the pen uh especially if you look at i know we were talking about the braves they're a little more even it's three six eight era for their rotation three two four for the relievers uh, the Astros have a gigantic split. Uh, their starting pitchers this postseason have a 6.18 ERA, but the bullpen has has come through at 2.85, and we'll probably get into that a little more when we talk about Game Five. Yeah, and you you talk about that inflated starting rotation ERA. It, it doesn't help when you you get short outings, probably shorter than you're anticipating, from a guy like Luis Garcia. In this game three, uh, you know, he, he was shaky at times. He was able to work himself out in and out of trouble over three and two thirds. He allowed a one run and it's likely that we're going to be seeing him in game six. Dusty Baker kind of alluded to that. He hinted to that at the end of game five. What do you see from Luis Garcia, David? And what about that leaves you encouraged for what he could possibly do coming back? in a game six, the way he was able to battle back from adversity in the ALCS. 
yeah, that's two starts in a row where his stuff was back up to speed, so to you know, so to speak. Uh, and he's shown throughout the regular season he can get into the mid nineties. His first start, his velocity was really down in the postseason, and now he's come back. And you know, whether it's a mechanical adjustment or whether his knee's healthy again, he certainly has his swing and miss stuff back, and in particular his cutter. And when you look at uh, you know, his cutter in his last game, according to StatCast, he had 12 whiffs out of 13 swings on his cut fastball. And it's, it's, there's some nuance to his cutter. It's not a, a big breaking cutter. It's a, it's a tight little cutter that's a power cutter that has a, a little bit of movement, but more deception than anything. And it has really served him well. Missing bats is big early in the game. You take the defense out of the equation. Uh, you take some pressure off of your defense and, that's the reason why you see pitchers nowadays look for swings and misses because it works and it can really help you out early in the game to miss some bats, get some strikeouts. And as I said, take some of that pressure off of your defense. And then when you do need to go to it, we need to put the ball in play. You know, obviously you don't want to walk hitters, but uh, certainly you can pitch around certain hitters that you don't feel good about and then trust your defense, you know, obviously, uh, you know, when you have to. And for the Braves, the pitching plan here, we, going into game three, you knew they were going to have to try and piece together games four and five. So game three went about as well as you could have hoped for. If you're Brian Snitker, if you're a Braves fan, you have Ian Anderson going five innings, and then you have Minter, Jackson, Matzik, Smith. That's the night shift. And, you know, they're pitching about an inning each. And it's a matter of the amount of pitches, obviously, right? Minter in this game, uh, let me bring it up. 17 pitches, uh, one, two, three, sixth. Luke Jackson, a one, two, three, seventh on 11 pitches. Matt Sick with 15 pitches. He worked around a leadoff single in the eighth. Will Smith closed it out after a leadoff single in the ninth on 14 pitches. All great. All able to come back the very next day and pitch in game four if needed. And here in game four, the Braves win it three to two. The big talk is on that feet in the seventh the back-to-back home runs from Dansby Swanson and Jorge Soler. But as the Braves are conti- – it's, it's interesting. You're seeing the pattern here a little bit. And I don't know if it's necessarily a matter of where we're at at the end of five games where the Astros lineup has kind of woken up a little bit. It could be a matter of, obviously, them finding their groove, getting their groove back. It could be also a sense of them being more comfortable with the arms that they continue to see. I don't think – it's a matter of Atlanta's bullpen getting tired or fatigued at this point. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Game five, you're, you're starting to see the, I don't want to call it the plan, but there is a script that every team follows, right? You have Dylan Lee start it, runs into trouble, and then boom, Kyle Wright comes in in a very tricky spot. Bases loaded, first inning. David, what is it like? And obviously, you know, you, you didn't work as a reliever all too many times, but in a situation like that, what are you trying to do first if you're Kyle Wright, who ends up going four and two-thirds? Well, you're trying to ex- attack the strike zone. I mean, there is no margin for error when you come into that game. And, you know, in a couple schools of thought, you know, if I'm the, you know, if I'm the hierarchy or a pitching coach or a decision maker on that team, you know, the big picture is, is to me is you know, Kyle Wright's part of your future you got a chance to start him in this game. And if he has a good game, that may have a, a residual effect on him psychologically into next year. Uh, you know, that, that would be my first thought. You're trying to develop young starting pitchers. So why didn't you just start him? 
and then use your relievers accordingly, take them out early and, you know, we'll work it that way in terms of the third time through the order. So I, I was a little, you know, I was a little disappointed in that part of it because I think there's a big payoff, but I understand, you know, that an opener strategy, if you get, if you get the top of the order out with an opener and then you, then you can go to your bulk guy, which would have been Kyle right in that situation. Uh, you know, that, that I, I certainly understand the, the merit behind that or the thinking behind that, but Kyle Wright really came up big in my mind to come in that spot, throw strikes, get out of it, keep his team in the game, and then give them some depth. Well, that that was huge uh, for them. And then for him as well, moving forward, uh, he's a guy you look for in the future. He's a guy that's going to be one of your starters um, in the next year and then hopefully for a few years if you're, if you're in that Braves organization or, or you're a Braves fan. I think a big inning for him obviously came in the first, but then his first full inning, he, he puts two men on with one out and – there were a couple of defensive plays that stand out in this game. I think here in the second inning where it's two on one out and Altuve's up where he's, you know, facing the hottest Astro hitter in a, in a cold Houston lineup. They're waiting for the others to wake up, but he's facing Altuve and he ripped one over to third base in Austin Riley, who's been very impressive this, this postseason. He makes a great catch. I thought that was really big and guiding right through that first full inning. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, James can probably give us a, a little more perspective on Austin Riley and where he ranks and what kind of a year he really had. But you talk about a guy that's a two-way player and a superstar in the making. It's it's impressive when you think about if you're and once again if you're if you're uh, if you're following the Braves, well, third base is covered. You feel pretty good about it that you got a young superstar there that's a two-way player. Uh, he's hitting the ball so hard, too. He barrels up the ball as well as anybody in that Braves lineup, in my mind. I know Freddie Freeman's one of the greats of all time, but right now, Austin Riley's in the batter's box. You feel pretty good about it if you're a, Brave, if you're a Braves fan. And, and uh, also, on the other end, as you said, defensively, he's made some great plays as well. Right, and, and Riley, uh, he's, he's going to get some MVP votes, mid-to-down ballot MVP votes at the very least. Uh, he had a marvelous season. Uh, he was top six in batting average. Uh, he was top 10 in slugging. He was sixth in the National League among position players in wins above replacement. Uh, he was worth over six wins uh, to the Braves. So credit to them for sticking with a young player who struggled earlier on, um, and now he's really broken out um, on both sides of the ball. Because the thing, he was like, oh, yeah, this guy can hit. Uh, but he, he's gotten better defensively, too, as the year's gone on. I think this was the moment, obviously, the – lowest point for the Houston offense here. They, they left 11 guys on base. They went 0 for 8 with runners in scoring position. And if you're Atlanta here, at the end of the night, you're a win away from your first World Series since 1995. You're doing it against a team that was second in the majors with a 784 OPS. And then through four games in the World Series, you're holding them to a 588 OPS if you're part of that pitching staff, David, you're seeing how much they're coming up short the other side. If you're pitching with that Atlanta staff, what are you saying amongst yourselves one win away and you're facing this offense that is kind of yet to wake up? It's a great question, Justin. You know, I, I could just tell you from a psychological standpoint, I don't know how to put a number to this. Uh, this is just the human element side of the game. When I was pitching, I was on the mound and I was facing a lineup or a hitter that I knew was struggling. I would attack even more. It gives you that confidence where you can get ahead quickly. You can get more of the plate with your fastball. You may challenge them more early in the count and watch them foul it off. And if you see them late 
that's what that's the read the bat part of the game that, that I was a that was a big part of, of how I went about it every pitch there's feedback when you throw it well how the hitter takes it whether he swings at it or not is he late what was the type of pitch I mean, there, there, there is just a a plethora of, of feedback for every pitcher on every pitch and that's what I've seen with with uh, with the uh, the Astros lineup is when they're struggling, they're kind of feeling for it. Bregman fouls it off, swings late. He's 0-1, he's 0-2. That's the key. When you, you, you It's almost like uh, you sense it. You sense a weakness when you're on the mound, that these guys are a little unsure. They're not picking up the ball. This guy's struggling. He's starting to press a little bit. Let me go right after him. Boom, boom. Next thing you know, it's 0-2. And that's what you always hear with hitters that are struggling. They always say, Man, it just seems like I'm always 0-2. I'm always behind in the count. There's a reason for that. Because we sense it as pitchers, and we're going to be even more aggressive when we feel like you're unsure of yourself in the batter's box. You talked about Granky hitting. What did you think of him on the mound? And he, he hadn't worked all too often before this game, but he pitches four scoreless innings, and for the amount of time that he was on the mound, looked pretty good. Well, he did. Uh, you're talking about – you know, a guy that's right on the cusp of a Hall of Fame career. If you look at his numbers, he's knocking on the door of a, of a Hall of Fame career. He, he's almost there. I don't know. You could probably make a strong argument, and James James could probably fill in some blanks here on where he ranks among his contemporaries. But I think he's over 70 career war, according to baseball references. There's a couple of different ways to compute war. We, we tend to throw that out there, war. There's, there's fan graphs war. Uh, there's baseball reference war. Some of them are fit-based, uh, fielder independent pitching-based. Some of them are ERA-based in terms of run scoring environment or, or whatnot. So, you know, there's different ways to rank him, but he is, without a doubt, among the best of his generation. He knows what he's doing. Uh, he gets a lot of ground balls with that power changeup he throws. He still gets excellent movement on that particular pitch. And if you're evaluating Zach Greinke's stuff, uh, yeah, maybe his fastball it certainly is nowhere near where it once was. This guy was a 95-plus mile-per-hour type fastball and explosive fastball in his, in his prime. His slider had tremendous bite in his prime. He's become more of a change-up pitcher and a movement specialist at this point in his career, but he still knows what he's doing. And I still rank his change-up as well above average in terms of stuff. So if you're looking at, you know, trying to buy pitches, you know, if it's Christmas time, you know, or Hanukkah or whatever, you know, whatever, you can go to the store and buy pitches. Zach Grinke's change-up is a pretty good pitch. It's, it's up there. You know, maybe maybe there's better that you'd pick, but as far as changeups go, Zach Green Zach Greinke is still pretty high quality. I know there's evidence to guys working on short rests, especially this postseason, and James can can deep dive on that for us. But if there's a game seven, Greinke would still be on short rest. At the same time, is there any way that if you get to a game seven, he's not throwing a pitch for you? He's kind of got to be there, right? Would you start him? That's a question. You know, that's a, that's a legitimate question. I think you cross that bridge when you get there without a doubt. But, yes, I think he's the type of guy that if, if needed, if called on, you absolutely would, would use him. And, and, you know, these sorts of things, too, these last two games, you wonder about extra innings. You know, there's no uh, – it's not like it was in the regular season the last couple of years. There's no ghost runner on second base. You have to play it out. Do we have uh, maybe a 15-inning game coming up in the next two games? Is there a chance that we're going to have one of those type of games? That, you know, the, the LCS in 1986, the Houston Astros-New York Mets game, the famous 16-inning game 
uh, is there one of those? And uh, that's when all, all hands are on deck. That's when one of those starters like Zach Greinke could, could step back in and, and become a hero. And I think the, the Greinke possibility uh, is a lot higher now that the strong hint is that Garcia is going to move up to game six. So Urquidy pitches in game five. Garcia gets bumped up. Now you say, all right, we'll say the Astros can get through and Garcia pitches well, Astros win. Now you're getting into game seven. Where do you go? And Justin, I think you're right. Granky might be, might be in play there. And when we're dealing with the Astros pitching, kind of glossing it over this series, I think not enough attention is being given to the Astro bullpen, maybe because they don't have a catchy nickname like the night shift, but we certainly saw it in game five, them coming alive, but it's kind of been there the entire series. They have a, a lower ERA by a sizable amount than Atlanta's bullpen, 2.85, James, like you mentioned, uh, in in the playoffs here. There were a couple of instances, though, in this game four, and I was wondering what you were thinking about this, David, where you kind of called the pitch selection into play, and it led to some costly runs. Look, it was a, it was a 3-2 game. At the end of the day, so each run was huge. But when you look at it and you see it happening from specific guys that are going to be there if the Astros want to win, and I see it in the sixth inning with with Phil Maton coming on, there are guys on base. And John Smoltz pointed this one out, where Maton is on, and it was Austin Riley able to get an RBI single on a two-two pitch. It was a hanging breaking ball, but I'm curious, is it poor, you know, I'll frame it this way, poor pitch selection or, or just poor pitch? Because earlier in the at-bat, he's able to get Riley on fastballs during the entire time. And then on 2-2, you know, Riley hits the curveball. So, again, poor pitch selection on the part of Maton or, or just poor pitch? The first thing I always look at in these situations is the, is the quality of the pitch. You know, we, we tend to get, you know, uh, absorbed with the sequence of pitches. And certainly I did. I, I laid my head on my pillow many a nights after games thinking, why did I throw that pitch when I should have thrown this pitch? That, that's human nature. But it always goes down to how was the quality of the pitch, first and foremost, because you don't always have to be the right pitch. Sometimes you can throw the wrong pitch, but if you throw it properly in the right spot with good execution and good location, it works. Hitters don't know what's coming. The pitcher does know what's coming. As long as you've got a little bit of mystery involved, you have the advantage if you execute your pitch. So I tend to always point to, hey, he kind of hung that. He kind of hung that slider. And Maytown's got a great slider. If he gets a sweeper off the plate, maybe he gets a swing and miss, and maybe we're not even talking about it. But, yeah, it's easy, it's easy to second-guess the selection. And I understand that. I do it too. But the first and foremost thing you look at is the quality of the pitch. Do you think there are any exceptions to that? Do you think you, you can able if you're able to look past the actual pitch execution if it's kind of poor? Because then not even worth discussing Swanson's home run, right? Well, it it depends if it's a really good pitch and you do execute it and get it in a good spot and the hitter still covers it, mainly right. down and away. Usually these are breaking balls or off-speed pitches that are down and away, maybe on the outside corner at the knees or just off the plate. And the, and the hitter goes out and covers it. He's all over it. He leans out all over the plate and, and hits it pretty hard. 
that's when you really get into, okay, step two is the sequence of pitches. That was the wrong pitch to throw. He left himself open on the inside corner. He was obviously looking for that pitch. He took advantage of me. He guessed right, whatever you want to call it. That's when you go back to, hey, wait a minute. Now, now I need to throw more fastballs, generally speaking. I need to get to the inside corner. To me, there's always something open for a hitter. If a hitter's covering the outside corner or if he's covering off-speed pitches, he's waiting longer, he's not swinging at bad pitches, he's not chasing, the answer to that is always a freezer, a freezer of a fastball in the inside corner. That, that, that's always the counter. Yeah, Dan B. Swanson was facing Christian Javier, and he was hacking at, at breaking balls. And then you have Javier kind of middle out. Swanson goes the other way with it. So, you know, in that case, you, you, you look at the execution. Yes, I, I think first and foremost, you look at the ex- execution. You look at the way the hitter reacts. You look at the quality of contact. How hard did he hit it? What type of swing did he put on that pitch? And where was the location of that pitch? And there, there, there is feedback there. There is an answer in there, in those tea leaves, so to speak. As you peel back those layers and you go one after the other, okay, how did I get to this pitch? What pitch did I throw? Where was it? How was the execution? How was the quality of the pitch? And how did the hitter react to it? In there is the answer somewhere. And just to keep track here, the key brave relievers in this game, Tyler Matzik, 11 pitches, Luke Jackson, 17 pitches, and Will Smith, 15 pitches. So, again, Atlanta, one win away from winning a World Series. It's the same as we stand here today as we approach game six, but we move to game five. Astros come alive here. They win nine to five, and they do it in a couple of rallies. You know, they do it come from behind fashion, not once, but twice. And we were talking about it at the top here, that first inning grand slam by Adam Duvall, Framber Valdez, allowing that pitch in the first inning. And from what we've seen, David, from Framber Valdez, he's one of the more like react. And again, the young pitchers, but he's, he seems what, what jumps out at me is that he's very reactive to the previous pitches that he's throwing. He loaded out those bases on, on a ball for, for call against Rosario that he really showed he wanted for a strike. And then the very next pitch is the Duvall Grand Slam. Is that too convenient for me to kind of wrap in my head or is there something to that? No, there's, that's part of the equation, without a doubt. That's the human side of it, right? Uh, did, they say the best thing a pitcher can have is amnesia. You know, any ball player, really, for that matter. I mean, hitters need to forget about their last half bad pitchers the sooner you can forget about a bad call from the umpire or a bad pitch, the better off you are. There's plenty of time to do that after the game in between starts. You've got days in between your, your, your starts when you can, you can go to video and you can look at all that stuff and second guess yourself all you want. In the heat of the battle, the best thing you can do is just move on to the next pitch and to, to whatever happens next. I think what I will say with Valdez is two starts ago, he pitched eight innings. He really gave him a deep game really was a maximum effort game for him. His stuff was really good. And since that game, he really hasn't had that good of stuff. And I think, it, once again, it's part of the workload. We've got uh, nowadays in the wild card era, these starting pitchers, these pitchers in general, have a heavy workload of high-pressure pitches. You know, Yogi Berra and Mickey Mantle used to go right to the World Series when they won the pennant. They didn't have layer after layer of postseason games, of big pitches, of high-stress pitches. 
I think it's taken its toll. I don't think Framber Valdez's stuff has been as good since that big start. He had two starts ago, you know, and, and now we've had two starts in a row where his stuff just wasn't as crisp. His breaking ball just wasn't as sharp. And you can kind of tell with him early on, he's got a really good curveball. And when it's biting and it's, it's jumping in there and, and diving and darting, that's when you know, he, you know, hey, he's got his good stuff. We saw kind of a rolling curveball. The curveball kind of rolled in there, and he didn't throw it a lot. It's almost like he got away from it uh, in these last two starts. So, yeah, I think part of it is emotional. Part of it is just the stuff. I think, I think some of these guys are worn down a little bit and starting to show. We've always heard pitchers use, but, you know, every, every pitcher really always wanting to believe in their strengths, right? You, 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 first and foremost, you're not thinking about getting beat by the batter. It's a matter of whether or not you're doing what you're supposed to do, whether you're executing, but given what we know about the Astros pedigree, when you see them slowly start to come alive here in this game, what do you think was going on in that Atlanta dugout? In the Atlanta dugout, you're always, you know, you're, you're thinking you're one pitch away. You know, we, we've got the lead. Let's just, uh, let's piece this together and hold that lead. And then once you lose that lead, then you're like, uh-oh, dude, we, we got to get the offense back going again. We got to score some runs. But I think, you know, when, when, you're, when you're on that bench and you have a roller coaster game like that, boy, that, that's a tough one to watch. You know, it's easier to play in these games than to watch them. I know, speaking from experience as a pitcher, I didn't get the chance to play in so many games, you know, 30 to 35 in the regular season and maybe one or two per series that you got a chance to start. So there's a lot of nail biting. There's a lot of anxiety going back and forth. So, yeah, if you're on that Atlanta bench, you're thinking, man, man we, we squandered us. We let him back in it. And then you see somebody like Bregman start to swing the bat. And then you, maybe you worry a little bit because he's such a great hitter. He's such a great player. He's obviously struggling. We don't know if it's just uh, happenstance, uh, the quality of his contact. Maybe he's a little bit unlucky, or maybe it is a little bit psychological because that creeps into it for every hitter. You need something tangible to show for your work, especially in a short series and postseason. I mean, this, is, this isn't July where you just stay the course and things will work out. You need, you need it to happen right now. And when Bregman hit that double in the gap to right center, that's if I'm on the Atlanta bench, I'm going, uh-oh. We, we've done a pretty good job against that guy. If he gets going, he's a big part of their offense. And I think you see that double, but then you see the next at-bat, he's intentionally walked, right? And, and this was the key spot for me in that fifth inning where you have the Braves going to the big guns early. They're, I mean, they went to A.J. Minter in the fourth, and we can – we could debate if that was a little bit too early there. They're obviously bullpenning and they have the lead. They're thinking, man, this is it. Let's close it out tonight. But here in the fifth inning, a couple of guys reach. They intentionally walk Bregman to get to Maldonado. And I think if the Astros come away, are able to come back and win this, you're going to look at that walk by Maldonado as the turning point in the series. And Guys, we all have ties to the Yankees. Tell me if I'm wrong. But that walk reminded me a lot of game four of the 96 series. Mainly because, look, they were down early, like the Yankees were against Atlanta. I guess being in Atlanta, being against the Braves kind of conjured up some memories as well. But it took me back to Wade Boggs' walk in the 10th against Steve Avery. And Boggs was able to walk mainly because Avery 
was having a tough time throwing strikes. Then you have this instance, AJ Minter hasn't pretty much done anything else but throw strikes. And you have the hitter in this situation challenging the pitcher. You saw it with Boggs and Avery. You see it here with Maldonado and Minter. What was Maldonado doing that kind of threw Minter off his rhythm? It's a good question. Um, there's so much stress with the bases loaded like that. You know, and speaking from experience, I know how that feels, especially if you fall behind in the count. Uh, Minter has had a heavy workload as well. I think to me, you know, and I said it at the time, even though I was alone, uh, I would have brought Martin in to face Maldonado right there. You know, you needed a right-handed pitcher right there. You've got a lefty Minter that's, that's you're leaning heavily on. Is he starting to show signs of fatigue a little bit? Um, I thought I saw something there maybe just with the naked eye. I can't put a number to it, but that was the time for Chris Martin to come right in there. And Chris Martin threw the ball well, but it was almost too late a little bit that uh, you should have brought him in sooner. Maldonado against Chris Martin, even though Minter's a great, you know, on a great run, he's a great left-handed pitcher. He can get right-handed batters out. Maldonado's really below average offensively. And against a right-hander and getting the platoon advantage against a right-handed catcher uh, who's below average offensively, and Martin has really good breaking stuff, I, pr- I probably would have gone that route. I would have gone with Chris Martin to face Maldonado in that spot. Justin, you mentioned the, the Boggs-Walk comp. And uh, another striking similarity is that the Boggs-Walk immediately uh, came right after uh, an intentional walk that loaded the bases and didn't give any wriggle wiggle room or margin for error for the pitcher. And David, you've talked about, you know, the kind of added stress that puts on a pitcher. What do you guys think of the intentional walk? I'm generally predisposed to, to dislike the intentional walk, especially to load the bases because of that ratcheting up of the, the pressure on the pitcher and leaving no room for, for error. There are always exceptions to the rule. There's always a great hitter that you don't want any part of that. You just, you know what, you want me to just mess around and pitch around them. See if I can get him to chase, depending on how much you trust the pitcher who's on the mound. Is he a veteran? Can he pitch around a hitter and maybe entice him to chase? That's part of the equation. Uh, but certainly what it does is if you intentionally walk a hitter to load the bases and I'm on the mound, speaking from experience, it puts extreme pressure on the first two pitches. If you fall behind in that spot, it's one Oh or two Oh. Now you really got to throw a cookie. You've got to aim right down the middle. You've got to really give in to the hitter in that spot. And that's when you really become vulnerable. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like, uh, you know, walking the bases loaded. There's exceptions. As I said before, Barry Bonds. Okay. (laughs) You take four, we'll send you down to first base and whoever's on deck, but by and large, it puts so much pressure on the pitcher, especially at the outset of the at bat, because if you fall behind, you're in trouble. David, where were you for that box at bat? Were you in the dugout? I was in the dugout, and it was uh, some of Joe Torrey's finest postseason managing to have him in that spot. And that was part of the the thing back then. You know, in in 1996, we made a trade for Cecil Fielder and Charlie Hayes that really gave us a lot of depth. And if that meant Tino Martinez on the bench in a World Series game or Wade Boggs on the bench, well, we had those two bats coming off the bench as well, and Joe Torrey knew that. And Joe Torrey understood that because he had been a man National League manager for years with the Cardinals and he knew the game. So having Boggs for that spot right then and there was one of the, one of the key moves to the, to the World Series in 1996. 
All right, so now you have game six going back to Texas here. Coming up Tuesday night, Max Freed against at this moment. Again, we're recording on Monday, but it is officially listed as TBD. It looks like that it is Luis Garcia on short rest. James, you kind of hinted at it a little bit earlier, but how could that look for Garcia with pitchers and the pattern of going on short rest historically in in this postseason? It's, it's not as easy as just, oh, just roll, roll the guy out and he'll be fine. There is a cost. And when you're in a do-or-die game, they don't really have that many other options. So maybe Garcia is uh, – Garcia seems to be their best choice. Uh, but there is a, a drop-off, and we see it. We see it when guys have come in on short rest, uh, diminished stuff, or, or less able to get deeper into the game or what have you. Um, if we look at postseason starting pitchers in the wild card era on we call you know what, what would we call it? normal rest four days rest the ERA is three point six four uh, on short rest on three days rest it ticks up to four point five five so just a little bit under a full run jump now if we were to do batting average two thirty seven on four days rest. 263 on three days rest. So another big jump strikeout to walk ratio uh, drops and uh, the team record for starting pitchers on three days rest in the wild card era since 1995 is 48 and 70. And I think that also undersells it a little bit because teams are really only going to push their higher end guys to come back on short rest aces, your number two, guys guys like that and not really with the back end guys so i think that even undersells the the penalty you you take when you're when you're pushing a guy uh on short rest and sometimes it's it's just a you know you're between a rock and a hard place and you just have to do it yeah all that right for one inning of uh urquidy who was potentially your sixth uh game starter and then then you know i you, you look at the residual effect when you use starters. It's kind of been a common theme throughout this postseason, the risk-reward. If you're going to use one of your starters in relief, how does that impact this next start? How does that impact your rotation? Uh, I will say this, uh, even though it's back in Houston, Max Freed, uh, to me, is, is a pretty good bet going into this game, not only because he's a solid pitcher and had a great season, but if you look at his game two performance, I thought he was a little bit unlucky. He gave up seven hits. He was seven for 21. They hit 333 off of him. But the expected batting average based on the quality of contact off of him was only 229. He actually had five base hits given up on non-hard hit baseballs. Non-hard hit. Hard hit baseballs being 95 miles an hour or over. This is according to StatCast. So I think Max Reed was a little unlucky in game two, especially in that one inning where he gave up multiple runs and there's a couple of infield hits in there, not so hard hit baseballs. And, you know, I think uh, watch out for Max Freed in game six. If you're the Braves, you do not want to see game seven on the road. You've got Max Freed. You've got one of your best starters going. I think you feel pretty good about that. And coupled that with the information you have on game two, where he was a little bit unlucky, that could easily turn around for him in game six. David, as the Braves travel to Houston, what's being said on, on the plane or maybe in the clubhouse after game five when it seems pretty evident that a team like Houston, who's obviously been here before, has gotten a little bit of mojo back? 
you're a little bit leery. You know, you had an unbelievable scene in Atlanta last night. You got Truist Park, which is a great, one of the newer ballparks. It was sold out. Those people were going nuts. Then you factor in outside the gates there. People watching the game outside there, there was estimated maybe 150,000 people there around that ballpark in Atlanta ready to explode. It was a real missed opportunity. Now you got to go back to Houston. And now you get, now, you know, you, you centered all around, as I said, around Max Free. Okay. We, you know, if I'm the Braves, I'm thinking, okay, we, we got a really good left-hander going. He's due for a good one. We trust him. We know he's got the stuff. We know he's got, got the, uh, the demeanor to pull this off. I'm, I'm hanging my hat on Max Freed if I'm the Braves uh, right in that plane. Uh, it's still disappointed, though. Still disappointed at a missed opportunity. There's nothing like winning at home. In 1996 with the Yankees, when we won game six, at home, well, you talk about the feeling you got, the crowd, the upper deck at the old Yankee Stadium shaking up and down, uh, the, the feeling you got uh, after the game out on the town, uh, just remarkable. So there's nothing like winning at home. The Braves missed an opportunity there after having been up 4 to nothing early in that game. I think the Astros know that. I think they sense what they can do in their own building. I think they recognize that – you know, I've been, I was there in 2017 at Minute Maid Park. That place is loud and they know that they could take advantage of that. They want to feel that energy as well. There's a good quote from, from, let me bring it up. There's a good quote from Carlos Correa here after last night's game. And I wanted to, to figure out if, this is accurate if, if this kind of holds true because the rounds are different, right? He said, we were down 3-0 last year to the Rays in the ALCS. We forced a game seven. Now we're down 3-1. Why can't we force a game seven again? Is that is that optimistic? Are the, is everything kind of the same there or is it just the stakes being the stakes and everything on an equal ground? No, you got you got series back home. If you're Houston, you feel you're feeling pretty good about it. You know, even though you know that you're still down in the series, you're back home and you you play well at home. Houston was tough to beat at home. Their their lineup up and down seems to really thrive at home. How many times have we seen uh, Jose Altuve or Yuli Gurriel reach out on an off speed pitch and hook it into the Crawford boxes? They know how to hit in that ballpark. They're dangerous in that ballpark. They feel like you know what? We got it back home. We can win two straight at home. No problem. It all hinges once again, as I said before, hinges on Max Freed. Really, yeah, you got, you know, we're back to in an era where we're talking about starters not going enough or starters are diminished. Game six falls on the shoulders of a really good young starter in our game, Max Freed. What's it like pitching in a place that kind of has those quirky features? Like you have the monster at Fenway, but then you have the Crawford boxes at Minute Maid Park in Houston. What's it like having those types of quirks right right behind you? Really, I would have to imagine it feels like it's breathing down your neck a little bit. It does. You know, any mistake, any pulled fly ball is not, is a nightmare. So you you certainly feel like you know. And I pitch. I would pitch there in Houston, similar to the way that I used to pitch at Fenway Park and. Against the right-hander, you would think, stay away, stay away, stay away from all those power right-handed batters in the Houston lineup. To me, it's just the opposite. You almost have to pitch, keep them honest in, in order to pitch away and throw all that off-speed pitches, throw all those off-speed pitches away, because the Houston lineup is so good at reaching out and hooking those off-speed pitches that aren't quite good enough. 
that are okay-ish, that are fringe-ish, but kind of stay on the plate a little bit, maybe up just a little bit. You just missed your location. Those are the ones that can go out and hit fly balls to left field on. That's what uh, Jose Altuve does. I mentioned Gurriel does that. Bregman does that well. So you have to keep them honest on the inside corner in order to protect all your off-speed pitches that you're trying to get down and away. All right, guys, game six coming up tonight. There could be a game seven. We'll we'll be here to talk about it whenever the series wraps up. Let's uh, incorporate another new segment that we kind of came up with. We had the, the opener earlier in the show, and as we kind of wind things down with this episode, we want to do a little three up, three down with uh, with each of us. You know, David, James, and myself, we each give a storyline that we believe deserves a little light shot on it. It could be really anything baseball related, uh, anything within the industry. It doesn't have to stay with this World Series, but... Uh, David, you you opened for us, I guess. James, how about you give it a crack? You lead us off here. Three up, three down. New venture here on Toe in the Slab. We'll see uh, see how we do here. But as we wind things down, what do you got? Uh, first time out with three up, three down. I'm going to keep it simple. Looking ahead to game six for the Astros pitching, they have Luis Garcia lined up, but we don't know, one, if he's absolutely going to pitch. That's how it's leaning right now. We also don't know how long he's going to go. So I think the focus is going to go back to the back end of that Houston pen. We and everyone have been singing the praises of the, the night shift, uh, as you called with the, with the Braves bullpen. Uh, Matzik, Minter, Jackson, Smith, they've been great. And you alluded to this earlier, but it's a little underrated how well the Presley, Graveman, Stanek, Maton quartet uh, has done. Um, in this series and in the postseason. So I'm going to focus on them. Those four guys this postseason have a combined 1.33 ERA. And coming off of the off day on Monday, going into Tuesday's game six, you wonder how many innings can they get out of those four guys? On a normal day, you say, okay, you can each pitch one. Who can go two? Who can go an inning and two thirds? Can they get five can they get six out of those guys to push it to game seven david next two games you can only have one quartet here where are you going the astros with the the names that james just mentioned you know the mayton presley the graveman the whom stanick or or with minter and matzik and jackson and will smith once again the nice shift right that 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 was that was me and David Wells after games. We were the night shift, so that had nothing to do with during the games. That's, that's what I had to keep him out of jail. That was my night shift back in the, in the 90s. So and I get a little chuckle when I see the night shift. But, yes, I mean, there, there is this perception, and, and certainly a lot of people, a lot of old-school baseball pundits, shall we say, talk about the rolling out three, four, five relievers in any one given game as being a detriment, meaning that you know one of those guys is going to have an off night. You know, how, how, how can you rely on that? You know, you need your starters to go seven, eight, nine innings like they used to back in the day because one of those four or five guys is going to have an off night. Well, that, that's not happening. These guys are all really good. Pitching one inning at a time, the degree of difficulty is much less than a starter having to navigate the third or the fourth time through the order where the familiarity really hurts a starting pitcher. Uh, you know, all the numbers tell us that, historically speaking, that the third and fourth time through the order – are tougher for a starting pitcher because the stuff starts to diminish and they see your stuff and they know what's coming a little better. They start to see you a little bit more. So 
you know, I, I find that argument a little bit of a red herring, especially when you have the quality of stuff that the night shift that these guys are bringing. So, uh, you know, Graveman, a closer stuff, upper 90s, mid to upper 90s, Maton, a razor blade slider, a really sweeper, and a good riding, lifting type four seam fastball that has some deception to it. So, yeah, I, I'm fine with it for now. Houston's going to need their bullpen more so. You know, I, I think on the Atlanta side, I, I keep saying it, that this inches game six for them and Max Reed, how far he can go. They really need a traditional start from him. On the Houston side, they're fine with the night shift. You know, and, and uh, this whole notion of, oh, one of those guys is going to have an off night. Uh, no, James gave us the numbers. It's not really happening. It's probably not going to happen for the rest of the series. Only two games left. All right, David, what do you have? Three up, three down. Uh, you know, to me, I, I think that was probably it. It's probably more of, uh, you know, for another show. One day we can talk about and get into the starter dynamic versus the reliever dynamic. Uh, but, you know, for me, it's just that. It's what I just said. It's, it, it's, there's a perception that the more relievers you use, uh, the worse off you're going to be, and that's going to catch up to you. But there is more better relievers than ever before. It's one of the parts of the game that I've seen evolved over the last 20 years. I've talked to a lot of baseball people about it, old school, new school. There is some great pitching going on in the bullpens nowadays. These guys are really, really good. And the notion that there's, oh, it's ruining the game. There's these faceless relievers that you're parading out there. Some of the greatest stories are the relievers. How about Matzik's story? How great is his story? Where he's been, the yips overcoming one after the other. There's great story after great story of relievers who have reinvented themselves that have dynamic stuff. They're coming in, their ball's moving all over the place. Um, I'm enjoying it. You know, this isn't faceless relievers coming in the game. These are high quality arms that are doing their job in high leverage situation, night in and night out, game after game, maybe getting a day off here and there. You know, my hats are off to all the relievers in this series. You are not faceless relievers. You guys are stars and you deserve to be properly uh, credited for the, for the job you do. You all matter. Don't forget that. Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm with you in that regard. Uh, I think that is a, a, a good topic for the coming weeks here as we, yeah, we get started with the offseason, but the, that dynamic is going to be right at the top of the discussion with the CBA coming up and how you know, they could possibly tweak some things that happen in, you know, in the game, not so much what happening, uh, what's happening off the field, they're obviously going to tackle some stuff there as well, but they're, they also need to address certain rule changes that may be coming into an effect. And we're hearing whispers that how the pitching is affected could be one of them. Absolutely. You know, rules changes potentially. That's for another show. The collective bargaining agreement's coming up in the, in the offseason. We'll see where we go with that. And I, It's interesting. It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens. And we're going to have plenty of time to talk about it over the offseason, because we're going to see every week, right? These three guys right here, we're going to be going at it every week. So uh, certainly I look forward to talking to you guys about all these issues as they unfold. You better believe it. I, uh, I, I didn't want, I honestly didn't want game five to be it. So I'm glad we have at least one more, hopefully two more. We see it go seven. Um, quickly, as we wrap it up, three up, three down for me, it has nothing to really do on the field, but I just need to give some proper time to Joe Buck, who consistently is performing at a very high level 
during a very important time of the year for sport fans and during a week where he is performing with the most high-profile sporting events in front of them. Uh, he, you know, he was calling the championship series. He, or I beg your pardon, he was calling the first two games of the World Series, breaks to co-call Thursday night football. So he starts in Houston, goes to Arizona. Very next night, he's in Atlanta, coming back to Houston here. If the series goes seven games, I don't know where they're going to have Thursday. Is Thursday night football maybe? The Jets are Jets playing Colts. on Thursday night. Okay, so he's going to have to go to Indy? I think I think it's at Indy. I could be wrong. Anyway, he's going to have to go from Houston to somewhere, either New York or Indianapolis. The point is, people say, "Oh, okay, it's a business trip, big deal." The dude's performing uh, at you know where there are massive amounts of eyes on the television screen watching and ready to go and attack him on Twitter whenever you know the 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 smallest error is made. And frankly, there aren't too many at all. So I think it was like the hip thing to do. A few years ago, to just trash Joe Buck, I think slowly the trend is now to start praising him again. I just let it from a performance perspective, he is as good as it gets, and he could call any event that I'm watching. It's a great point. Uh, some some announcers become lightning rods for whatever reason. The fan base, they think he's against them. I'll say this: that as far as a big, when something big happens, a big call, a big home run, he's one of the best ever. I mean, in 1996, I still remember his call when Jim Leyritz took Mark Wohlers deep. Back to the track, to the wall, we are tied. And then, and then nothing. That's the best part about Joe Buck. He gets out of the way in a big call. He doesn't talk over the crowd. He lets the pitchers kind of tell the story. I think for any young announcer, that's, that's something to watch. In, in a big moment, make your call, get out of the way. Let the pitchers tell the story. Let your director do the job. And we get some, some great people that do a great job, producers and directors, everybody in the truck. Uh, that's the time to get out of the way and let them do their job. Time for us to lay out, right, guys? Uh, we're about to enjoy game six, hopefully game seven. Let's keep this baseball season rolling as, as much as we can. Quick predictions from either of you over the next two games, hopefully. My prediction is, is that, uh, you know, Max Freed comes up big. And uh, to me, you know, I know my original prediction was Houston and seven. And, you know, I'm not shying away from that. Uh, if it gets to seven, it's Houston and seven. But the, the one stopgap right now is Max Fried in game six. And if you're the Braves, that's where, that's where you're hanging your hat right now. So uh, Jeff Quagliata, you know, our other researcher at the Yes Network does a great job for us, along with James Smythe. He's a huge Atlanta Braves fan. Quags, hang your hat on Max Fried tonight because you better get it done in game six. I took uh, Astros in six. Uh, I'm ready to wear that if uh, if that ends up uh, totally blowing up and going the Braves way. But I think the Braves do close it out on Tuesday night. So I, I'll, I'll, I'm flip-flopping here, but I think the Braves do close it out and they render the game five blown lead as a bit of like that Pujols off a of Lidge home run in 2005 where it was a gut punch loss but they came right back and, and ended it in clinch anyway. So I think the Braves do take it tomorrow. I had Astros in seven. Again, I think if they get to seven games, the Astros are going to win. So this is on the Braves now to close it out in game six. And we're going to learn a lot about David talking about Max Fried. We're going to learn a lot more about how teams treat starting pitching with this one game coming up. I think it, it's going to be 
uh, very important because there's a lot on the line for Max Freed, obviously for the Braves. You don't want to get to a game seven in Houston. All right, let's lay out for real this time, guys. Uh, big thanks to uh, both of you here. Big thank you, the listeners. Always enjoy listening. Always enjoying you rating, reviewing, subscribing. You've uh, you've written some interesting praises for us, and we appreciate that. We, you know, you go back on some of these forums and uh, see what the uh, what the ratings and the reviews are. We enjoy that. We'll read them off sometime. A uh, big thank you to our awesome producer Dan Work as well. We will talk to you after the World Series, whether it be after a Game Six or after a Game Seven, and of course each and every Tuesday here on Toe in the Slab. Enjoy Game 6, perhaps Game 7 as well. Take care, everybody. Ball and Play 2 presented by DraftKings is underway. Head over to our Warehouse Games channel to see all the action from Ball and Play. Get some skin in the game and download the DraftKings app right now. Don't forget to use our promo code WAREHOUSE. That's promo code WAREHOUSE only at DraftKings Sportsbook. The crown is yours.